Today, I have the pleasure and the privilege of speaking to you on the subject of divine sex and celibacy. Divine sex and celibacy. I don't know what you're going to make of Andrew's comment about it being my favorite subject. We'll leave that aside. I, I don't have the quick-wittedness to respond to such comments in the moment. But I was um, talking to my father on Friday night about doing this series. And my dad's Jewish. He doesn't really come to church. Doesn't ever, hasn't really ever been to church. And um, I said to him, I'm, I'm preaching on sex. And he was very confused. He was saying, is this some sort of practical seminar? Is there like how-to? Are there going to be diagrams? Absolutely not. That's not what we're doing this morning. This morning, I want to look at what the biblical vision of sex and celibacy is. And I want to show you that actually, it's much bigger um, than many people realize. It's more exciting than many people realize. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you want to turn to that, that's page 1,669. 1,669. I'm going to read from that in a moment. But before we do that, I want to ask the question, why is this so important? Why is it so important that we look at this topic? A few reasons. The first of which is, in many ways, this topic of sex and sexuality is the, um, the point of greatest conflict between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. That um, This is, in fact, why we're doing our next Salt Live event, Proud and Prejudice, Isn't Christianity Repressive and Intolerant? Because all sorts of... Um, Secular folk in London will look at the Christian ethic on sex and just say it feels utterly oppressive, uh, repressive. It, um, it jars with, with their progressive instincts. Maybe that's your, those are your instincts. And it, it seems to be so outdated and out of touch with our culture. In fact, if you're not a Christian here, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you would say to yourself, um, you know, I'm attracted to certain parts of the Christian faith, but I could never be a Christian because of the weird hang-ups or attitudes that Christian ha- Christians have towards sex. And so this morning, it's important that we understand why the Christian faith is so different to the secular culture on this, on this question. And also, I want to show you that actually it's much more uh, conducive to human flourishing than you might realize. Actually, I'd go further and suggest that our culture is deeply confused on this topic. I would suggest that if an impartial observer was to come fresh to Western culture, even before we think about what the Christian faith has to say, they would quite quickly see that the Western worldview on sex is not leading to human flourishing. Cracks are beginning to appear, or in fact are very obvious, and the wheels have come off. I would describe the contemporary attitude to sex as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. People are seeking all sorts of uh, different uh, new ways of finding sexual pleasure, whether that be multiple partners or uh, casual hookups or whatever. But actually, they're finding, they're not finding pleasure and fulfillment in that. There are numerous studies that show that the group of people with the, the least satisfaction in their sexual lives are those who are single, living uh, promiscuous lives. So that's the first uh, reason. And actually, I think there are all sorts of implications of the, uh, what we call the sexual revolution, the unfettered approach to uh, the lack of restraint and the unfettered approach to sex uh, that's been kind of promoted probably since the 1960s in this country. The first of which is uh, pornography. I think we embraced it as something of a harmless habit, but we had no idea that the, the addictive power and the way that it would destroy so many lives. Even secular commentators now re- uh, reporting on this. There's a campaign, Fight the New Drug, um, 
Even before we talk about people trafficking and the ubiquitous uh, exploitation, of, uh, of largely female exploitation, or the financial greed driving the porn industry, that it's a billion pound, many, an industry worth many billions of pounds. We have numerous reports of porn diminishing people's sexual appetites and destroying their real, tangible sexual relationships. Uh, the famous musician John Mayer was interviewed by Playboy magazine, and he described this. He said, this is my problem now. Rather than meeting someone new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. The psychologist uh, Philip Zimbardo has warned of the growth of this phenomenon, and it's actually kind of widely understood as one of the reasons that's driving uh, the decline in fertility in in westernized uh, cultures. And actually, he said it's even going to get worse, because with the rise of virtual sex and with 3D and all that kind of thing, this trend is only increasing. Second way I think you can see the way the wheels are coming off is is the struggle and the challenge our culture has with body image. I think the proliferation of sexualized imagery all around our culture puts a huge pressure on women and perhaps increasingly men to have a kind of body that reflects some of the images that they're seeing. Um, I think you can see this in the way teenage girls are routinely expected to send naked images of themselves to teenage boys in schools, and police are recording having to intervene and tell these people essentially they're sharing uh, pictures which are essentially child pornography of themselves around their schools. And It's really sad. I read one letter in The Guardian from a young woman just last month, which is deeply chilling. She said, I recently used my boyfriend's phone and a porn video was open. His 45 searches were limited to teen and skinny, and my confidence came crashing down. He has one very specific taste, and I am not skinny nor a teen. I can't comprehend that I'm not sufficiently attractive to my partner at the age of 27. My emotional reaction is is as if he had been cheating. Why am I not enough, and how can I be enough? It takes me back to my first relationship when I was 18, and my then-boyfriend stupidly talked freely about porn. My immediate thought was, I am not enough. And that was the start of three years of serious anorexia and two years of bulimia. I thought he would stop watching other women when I was hot enough. Now I can't sleep at night. Why won't I feel good enough until he stops watching porn, which will never happen? I'd feel awful if he touches me, and I'll feel awful until I get skinny. But I can never be a teenager. It's deeply sad to think about the impact this is having on people's lives. And the third way I think we can see this is the way that family life has been destroyed by this phenomenon, or at least undermined. Lives have been wrecked. I think part of the uh, sexual revolution has put a real emphasis on on desire. And it would say, essentially, your desires are the chief uh, driver in your life, and you have to respond to those desires. You can't repress those desires. But what that's done is it's legitimized any form of unfaithfulness, adultery, divorce. People have said, well, I just couldn't help how I was feeling. And we kind of see that as an all okay reason to then break up marriages. And you see all sorts of uh, horrifying statistics about children growing up in single parent families as a result. So this had huge consequences. But if our culture's um, experiencing this deep confusion, I think our church is also experiencing deep confusion. And I mean that in the, the small C word, all churches. Um, I can see this in a few ways. I think many ways uh, the church has adopted some of the same practices and habits of the world. So we're just doing the same things as everybody else, perhaps not looking that different to the world. We can also see this in the way that this has changed our view on something like celibacy. It feels unobtainable. Uh, celibacy meaning someone just not ha- choosing not to have sexual activity outside of marriage. But the Christian vision then feels unobtainable and unrealistic. It feels deeply unappealing. For some of you, you will be living in what I would describe as the shadow of guilt and shame. 
that you know that your lives haven't matched up to the biblical picture here, and it just feels deeply difficult to even talk or think about this topic. Some, and of course, there'll be things like many people here will have experienced abuse, and that will also have left an indelible mark. Some of you will feel like you're failed, you're damaged goods. Some of you will feel like you're failing now, and therefore you don't really feel like you're free, you're able to, to break out of this. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with this is because the church has failed to give us a compelling, positive vision of what it means to express our sexuality. What I mean by that is that the church has often just given a list of rebukes. No sexual marriage, no pornography. Those are not bad things. But what it's failed to do is give people a positive view of human flourishing in this area. And so we need a fuller vision of sex and celibacy And I'll show you that the Christian view of sex is much more than just a list of restrictions. Rather than being anti-sex, actually the Christian worldview has a much higher view of sex than you might realize. And I also want to show you that it has a much higher view of celibacy, certainly than many in our culture would have. Let me read to you then from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I'll go on to the beginning of chapter 7. It's Paul writing to the Corinthians. And you should note that when I'm about to read in verse 12, you see the bits in the inverted commas? Those essentially where the translators and interpreters, commentators, have des- are describing what the Corinthians believe. So they're kind of, he's repeating back to them things that they've said to him, probably in correspondence. So those are not things that he believes himself. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, again another thing that they've said to him, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what I want to first talk about with you this morning is the power and purpose of sex. The power and purpose of sex. Paul begins this passage by by speaking back to the Corinthians what they've said to him in verse 12 and 13. And he's dealing with some of their false beliefs about sex. 
Um, and you've got to, the first thing you should know is that the Corinthian culture has a very similar attitude to sex as we do. Uh, Corinth was the kind of place, one commentator said it was the kind of place that you say what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, this is like lots of uh, sailors and guys, it was a, a real den of prostitution. If you called a lady a woman of Corinth, you're basically accusing her of being a prostitute. So this is a place which is deeply sexually licentious. Actually, it's fascinating that they are advocating a very similar worldview to what is popular in today's culture. Verse 13, in quotation marks, it says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. The implication is that sexual desire is like an appetite for food. You know, just in the same way as you might feel hungry, you get some food. If you feel uh, sexually desirous, then you satisfy that desire. It's simple. It's reminiscent of the Bloodhound Gang, their song, You and Me, Baby, We're Nothing But Mammals, so let's do it like they do it on Discovery Channel. I used to work for Discovery Channel, and you'd be surprised at how many people repeated that to me. Um, not a personal proposition, you understand. Um, just, just a, uh, just, they just like to, like to repeat the phrase. Um, Essentially, what these guys, what these great uh, 1990s philosophers would say to us, essentially, um, that sex is an animalistic desire that needs to be fulfilled, that by having sex, you're finding someone else who can satisfy that need, and then you're seeking to fulfill that. But Paul's attitude to sex is very different. In verse 16, he forbids having sex with a prostitute because the one who sleeps with a prostitute becomes one body with her. And he's not just talking physically. Of course, that's true that when you have sex with someone, you become one physical um, body with them. Actually, the key to understanding this quote is what he then goes on to quote when he says, the two will become one flesh. And he's quoting from Genesis. Essentially saying this is more than a physical act. This is two people being joined together, being fused together, two people into one, body and soul. You've got to understand that this idea of one flesh is like a controlling uh, idea in Paul's thinking about sex. Actually, when you look at the biblical narrative and you look at this idea of one flesh, it's a very rich idea. It's talking about the combining of body and soul into one person. It's the ultimate symbol of the marriage covenant. If marriage is about two people becoming one in every sense of the word, sex is the ultimate symbol, the lived experience that reflects that overarching reality. It's much more than an act of physical satisfaction. It's the act of becoming totally vulnerable with the other person, becoming naked and giving yourself to them. Sex, if you like, is 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 the most fundamental way of you saying to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you, and you belong entirely to me. We are one. You can see this in the the Genesis um, passage, uh, which Andrew, I think, read to us a couple of weeks ago when talking about marriage. Adam says, this at last is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And picture the scene, it goes on. And the man and woman were naked and not ashamed. Which is a deeply beautiful picture. Before sex has even been marred or influenced by the problem of sin coming into the world. Remember, this is pre-fall here. Sex is this beautiful gift of two people being coming together naked and unashamed and being united together. What we're saying right from the, off, uh, from the word go is that sex is a gift from God. It's part of God's good design for the world. And you saw this in Song of Songs when Andrew read out some of the passages. Um, you know, chapter four is, is particularly, I think, talking about sex. And uh, there's some lines, I won't read out the most colorful, but um, 
This is one that the lover says to his beloved, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. He's intoxicated by her smell. He's enraptured by her. There's no sense that this is a union that shouldn't be celebrated and enjoyed. And actually, this should really speak to those of us who are coming from perhaps backgrounds and contexts that have seen sex through, a, through the lens of this is something which is taboo, and this is something that we almost maybe are embarrassed about. Uh, sex isn't something you speak about. You know, some of the early Christians basically thought of sex as a necessary evil. You know, yes, it was something you had to do to procreate, but it certainly don't enjoy it. That was the kind of attitude of some of the early Christians. But the biblical picture actually is the exact opposite of that picture. This is something to be enjoyed, to be cherished, a gift from God, loaded with significance. Uh, uh, this wonderful picture of two people becoming one in every sense of the word, giving themselves to each other entirely. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you recognize anything of what I'm talking about, that sex is a, part, a transcendent experience in any way, actually that worldview more closely reflects the Christian worldview than you realize. Actually, this even speaks of a bigger reality. Ultimately, sex is this intense picture of two people coming together as a picture, ultimately, of our relationship with God. You've got to remember that the marriage covenant itself is a picture of Christ laying down his life for the church and the church then laying down its life in worship of Christ. And sex is the ultimate picture that kind of um, symbolizes that, that deep self-giving love. This is how one philosopher described it. Sex is like religion, not only because it's objectively holy in itself, i.e. a gift from God, but because it gives us subjectively a foretaste of heaven and of the self-forgetting, self-transcending, self-giving that it is what our deepest hearts are designed for, long for, and will not be satisfied until they have because we are made in God's image. And this self-giving constitutes the inner life of the Trinity. He's saying the reason we enjoy sex so much is because it's the ultimate picture of giving yourself of ultimately what our hearts long for, to be caught up in this self-giving love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It satisfies our desires because we were made in the image of God, made to give ourselves away and to receive this unconditional love. In a sense, sex is a foretaste, a glimpse of the most precious union that we experience as Christians with God. This also speaks of the purpose of sex, that it was intended to unite two lovers. Obviously, Andrew spoke about the purpose of sex as bringing children into the world as part of the marriage covenant, so I won't um, dwell on that. But there's another side to it. It also speaks of that sex having a uniting influence on a couple. One pastor described it with a fantastic image as the communion of marriage. Every week we take communion as a reminder and a renewal of the covenant that we share with God, that we receive, taste the bread, we drink the wine as a symbol of Christ giving his body and blood for us on the cross. And then every week we, remind, we enter into that reality again. And that's in the same way that when a married couple come together in sex, they are remembering and uh, renewing the covenant, that they've, the, the reality that they've given themselves to each other. And this is why the reason, part of the reason why Paul instructs them not to give up the habit of having sex together. And in chapter 3, he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And essentially, they should um, continue uh, sleeping together. And likewise, the wife to her husband. In verse 5, he says, do not deprive one another except for a limited time. See, some in Corinth were, were going the other end. They were taking things the other direction. They saw the sexual licentiousness of their culture. And they said, actually, we need to be celibate then, even within marriage. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. It's this, he's saying, actually, this 
uh, sexual life together for a married couple is part of the essential rhythm of married life. It's the glue of the covenant. It's drawing each other together. And as they renew their love together, they will guard against any risk that they'll be tempted elsewhere. Now, don't forget just how radical what Paul's saying here is. To a Roman audience, to say that a wife has, um, that the husband should give up, give up his body for his wife is deeply um, countercultural in that context. You know, it's very typical for a Roman man to have his wife, his concubines, his, his mistresses, and, and actually um, the idea that a woman, uh, that, that he would have to give up his body for his wife and that they have a kind of joint ownership is deeply countercultural. This high view of sex has a number of implications. First of all, it means that sex is not something to be approached passively in marriage, but to be pursued and prioritized. It means if you're married, pursue your spouse. Take Paul seriously here. Don't give up the habit of sleeping together. Sometimes it will be difficult for all sorts of different reasons, some physiological, some psychological, maybe some uh, things around shame from past experiences, uh, busyness. And all I think really what we're saying here is this is something to address. If it's hard for you, if you've given up the habit, then it's something to be worked through with trusted friends or Christian counselors. But husbands, this doesn't mean simply demanding sex from your wife. I, hope, I would hate that after this sermon you get a bunch of husbands saying to their wives, you know, we need to have sex more. That, would, that wouldn't exactly be quite the spirit of what Paul's saying here. <laughs> it means if you're a husband, it means pursuing your wife, romancing her, laying down your life, serving her. It means communicating about sex. It means being honest with one another. It means not expecting it to be perfect from the start, but something you work at together. I think this may mean scheduling sex. I know some of you feel that's deeply unromantic, but you'd schedule everything else which is important in your life. So why would you not make sure you set aside time for this? This should also change our orientation and our approach to sex. The biblical vision of sex is very different to the cultural attitude. In our culture, we view sex primarily as giving me personal pleasure. Actually, the the biblical view is this is your ultimate act of giving yourself to the other person. So it means that that's how you should approach sex as a married couple. It's fundamentally other-centered, giving yourself to the other. You're seeking the other's pleasure. You're celebrating them. You're making them your standard of beauty. And of course, when both parties are seeking the other's pleasure, then both are satisfied. And actually, this uh, high view of sex is what's then driving Paul to make the, the, the rebuke and the, the challenge to sexual immorality. The church in Corinth, and I think in our culture today, has been uh, drawn in to its culture's approach to sex. So what's Paul's response to that? And that's the second point I want to bring you to this, this morning, the perils of sexual immorality. Essentially what he's saying is that sex is too big a thing to be dealt with casually. He's saying because sex is so powerful, because it's this moment of you uniting yourself to someone, giving yourself entirely, coming together in a perfect, uh, perfect symbol of oneness in every way, then to have sex with someone who you're not committed to is ridiculous. Saying, should I take the members of Christ, your body, he's talking about your body there, and make them the members of a prostitute, i.e. be joined with a prostitute? And his answer, never. To have casual sex is like a contradiction in terms. With your body, you're saying, you, I give myself to you entirely. I'm yours forever. But with every other choice in life, you're rejecting them. To take this powerful tool and take it outside the context of commitment and ultimate oneness in every way, i.e. marriage, actually will have all sorts of casualties and it will end up hurting the other person. It's a bit like fire. Fire in a fireplace is really good. It provides heat to the home. But take fire out of the fireplace and put it on the carpet and it destroys your house. 
This means that there's no such thing as no strings attached sex. Sex will always carry this extra significance. See this in a few ways. See this in the way that some people feel deep jealousy towards others' previous sexual partners. I remember being at university and chatting to a guy, and he said, I know I shouldn't be angry or jealous about my girlfriend's previous sexual partners, but I just can't stop it. I'm just jealous of them. Even though that, you know, he wasn't on the scene and she wasn't being unfaithful to him, the idea that she'd shared herself with other people was deeply troubling for him. Why? Because we don't want to share anyone else. We don't want to share our spouse with anyone else, even their former partners. If you have sex with someone, it's harder to walk away from that relationship without being hurt. It adds an extra, a huge level of extra connection between you. And then just think about rape and sexual abuse. If sex is truly meaningless, why is sexual abuse so damaging? What is it about sex that has the power in a brief moment to uh, change someone's life forever and to make them feel dirty and uh, defiled and used? It can't be just because of the fact that they didn't consent. It's something that has been deeply precious to them, has been stolen. So Paul is saying, because sex is so powerful, it's ridiculous to have sex with someone who you're not married to, someone who you haven't given that absolute commitment to, to give their life to you. But Paul goes further. Paul's command is much more comprehensive than just no casual sex. In verse 13, he says, the body is meant Sorry, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And that word he's using, porneia, really covers any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Obviously, it's where we get the word porn from, but it's talking about sex before marriage, um, adultery, anything like that. And actually, Jesus goes even further in the Gospels. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he's saying is that lust is about as much about our desires and about our thought life as what we do. He's saying, this is not what you are made for. Don't do it. He's not saying it's something you want to avoid. Maybe you want to try and navigate around. He's categorical. You need to flee from sexual immorality. He's saying you have to run away from this. He's putting a big warning sign in front of you. He's saying, look, this is high risk. Don't even go there. Why is Paul so concerned about this sin? Well, I think one key verse is verse 12. When the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful for me, his response is this, I will not be dominated, or in other translations, I will not be enslaved by anything. I think Paul is being, referring really to the risk of being enslaved to sexual immorality. And the thing about enslavement is you only know you're enslaved to something when you try not to do it. Anyone who has dabbled in different types of uh, sexual sin and then sought to remove themselves will know what I'm talking about here. You want to be free from it, but you return time and again and again while saying to yourself, I don't want to do this. Perhaps it promises quick reward. You think, oh, it's harmless. But then it drags you in and pulls you in and it controls you. Like any addiction, there's a law of diminishing returns. So you end up going back to it, but needing to do more and more uh, to get the same thrills. You hear of guys who've wrecked their careers. Um, they're like looking por- Damien Green, like looking at pornography in Parliament or committing adultery, um, destroying their marriages because they can't control this desire. Paul's saying you can't manage it. You can't tolerate it. You've got to flee from it. It's the saying, lust is like a dragon that you, you feed it thinking, I'm going to tame this beast. But actually, every time you feed it, it's just getting bigger and bigger and making more of a demand on your life. So Paul's saying, don't even entertain it. Flee from it. But what does he mean by fleeing? Well, I think a few things. First of all, fleeing means taking this seriously. Not justifying it to yourself. Not telling yourself it's okay because everyone else is doing it. Fleeing will involve making specific choices to remove yourself from temptation. 
When I was in my third year at uni, about a year after I'd become a Christian, I found myself in a situation where I felt real sexual temptation. So I ended up moving out of my flat and staying in someone else's flat, and he went to stay with his parents uh, because I just thought, I have to remove myself from this situation. When I was, uh, again, a little while later, when I was struggling with pornography after I became a Christian, I ended up getting rid of my smartphone. I said, I, 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 you know, I just have to be done with this, and this is the way I want to cut this out of my life. Jesus, said, if, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. That's the kind of rigor and uh, we need to take approach to sin. Fleeing is an ongoing action. It's something that you need to keep doing. Every time you see temptation, you have to choose to run in the opposite direction. If this is your struggle right now, a few things. One, talk to someone. Talk to a trusted friend. Talk to a life group leader. Walking with someone else is so powerful that reminding you of God's grace and that his power in the fight against lust. I think... The other key thing to remember here is you are not trapped by this. Although Paul is talking about the la- using the language of slavery here, it's important that you understand that you as a Christian are a free person who's made yourself a slave. And at any point, you can choose in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk out of this and not be controlled by this again. It's one of Satan's greatest tactics to tell us that we are controlled by this sin. But I think there's more to fighting this than simply commanding uh, us against sexual immorality. We need a positive vision of the life to pursue together. And as a community wanting to walk in sexual purity, I really think we need to redeem our vision of celibacy. See, the, one of the biggest challenges in our battle with sexual immorality is that actually we don't really desire this. That actually, in a way, we're quite comfortable with this. And so I want to talk to you briefly to close on the goodness of celibacy. Many of us have a very low view of celibacy, of choosing not to have any sexual activity outside of marriage. We think of it as like a death sentence. We've imbibed the cultural expectations and beliefs around sex that we say, uh, this is, um, you know, we all have sexual desires and we cannot repress them. We must be able to express our sexual desires. All the words around abstaining from sexual um, activity all sound very unappealing and a little bit like they're from a Jane Austen novel. Chastity, virginity, abstinence. They don't fill you with great appetite and joy. It's actually with Paul's rebuke here, he's also presenting us a very positive and inspiring vision of the single celibate life. It's not saying that you need to now go away from today being like, with a monk-like pledge, I'm never going to get married and I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. More that, for as long as God has called you to singleness, for as long as you are single, you make a commitment and a vow to stay walking in sexual purity and that you're content in that situation. So a few ways to think about celibacy. The first one, celibacy as faithfulness. Paul's reasoning in verse 17 about being united with a prostitute is is essentially saying, do not be united with a prostitute because you are united to the Lord. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's saying, let's for example, say you're a married man and someone was making an advance to you. You'd say, no, sorry, I'm I'm already with someone else. As a single person, you might say, no, I'm, I'm waiting for my spouse. and I'm going to keep myself pure for them. But I think Paul's taking it even to another level. He's saying that all believers have a higher calling, a higher loyalty that they're called to be faithful to. He's saying if you're single or married, you're already joined to the Lord. Now, he has a spouse-like demand for loyalty and faithfulness in your life. He's saying you are his. Just as spouses have a sense of ownership over the other, the Lord makes that ownership demand over your life. He's saying, just like the, the, the lover says to his beloved, you're mine, stay faithful to me. Often think we think of celibacy as unwantedness. No one wants to have sex with me, no one wants my body. But that's precisely the opposite for the Christian. He's saying, no, you're my true lover. 
and it demands my unwavering loyalty and faithfulness. This means our desire to avoid sexual immorality isn't some kind of impersonal commitment to a set of rules laid out by the church. No, it's, a, it's driven by a desire to stay faithful to the one who has loved me and laid down his life for me. My desire to avoid sin is driven by my love for Christ. The question is, do you love Christ? Do you adore him? Do you see his love for you? The way he's pursued you as a lover has pursued his beloved. He tolerates no rivals for his affection. He desires the you that you recognize him alone as the one who truly satisfies your soul. That's the first thing. Celibacy is faithfulness. Celibacy is holiness. Paul's appeal to avoid sexual immorality is based on a radical understanding of who you are. In verse 19, he asks a rhetorical question. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He's saying your body is a dwelling place of the living God. After you were saved, the Holy Spirit has come to make his home inside you. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, it's better that he leaves so the Holy Spirit comes to them. Think of the incredible worth and dignity this gives to your body. This is the place where the living God has chosen to dwell. Think of the tabernacle verses that Andrew read out uh, from Exodus 33. Think of this is the significance of the place. This is the place where God has come to meet with his people in the tabernacle and the temple. And this is the significance then that God has come to give uh, give to us, that he has come to to dwell in our bodies. Paul is saying that you are now that temple. And it's crucial you understand this holiness is something that you have received. It's not something that you generate for yourself. Just before this passage, Paul describes a list of sexual sinners. But it says to them, you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's this outrageous and wonderful reminder that we as Christians have been washed clean. The lingering marks of sin are no longer upon us and that God sees us as his spotless bride. I think this particularly speaks to those of you who feel that because of past sexual transgression, you feel like damaged goods or a filthy rag, that however many times you wash it, it's still not clean. And that might even apply as well for sin that's been committed against you, as well as the sin that you've committed. You know, I've heard of people who need to keep going into the shower and just feel like never feel clean because of what they've done. Paul's answer to that is you have been washed clean. You have been made holy. Think of it like this, you know, think of a bride who's been all cleaned up and in her wedding, white wedding dress, ready for her, her marriage. And then think of someone who's just gone through tough mudder. You know, they're absolutely drenched in mud. And then they come to a, a, bit, a really muddy situation somewhere where they're going to get really unclean. The tough person who's been through tough mudder is going to be like, well, of course, I'm fine to do that because I'm already really messy and dirty. But the bride is going to say, no, I don't want to get this, this I don't want to uh, discolor my garments. I don't want to make myself muddy. And that's what Paul is saying. You as a Christian are more like the bride because Christ has come to you and cleaned you up. You may still fall in a muddy puddle from time to time, but you can always come back to him and be cleaned up again. So next time temptation comes knocking, you can say, no, that's not who I am. Jesus has cleaned me up. I've graduated from that. That's not who I am anymore. I don't want to mess up these new clothes that the Lord has given me. I've moved beyond that. I want to preserve the purity that the Lord has given me. And finally, I think the, the, the final way I want to present to you to see your celibacy see, is it's an act of worship. Paul's call to sexual purity is a call to worship. In verse 19, he reminds them, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In effect, he's saying your life isn't your own. Jesus gave his life to redeem you from slavery to sin, to make you his own, to bring you into his family, to make you part of the people of God. And you're calling to live a celibate life. Is part of an act, a lifestyle of worship. It's 
at part of the fact that you recognize him as king of your life. In a sense, what I'm saying is if you're a single person here, that, God, that you can use the gift of your uh, sexual desires and, your, uh, and, and sexuality in the broadest sense of the word as an act of worship. That you can lay that on the altar before God and say, I, I don't want to pick this stuff up as an act of worship. I want to give this as an, as a, as an offering to you. I want to lay it down on the altar. This means that really the most powerful weapon against the uh, desire, uh, like sexual temptation, is a big vision of who God is, a reminder of his majesty and his goodness, and a desire to worship him. Yes, you can cut other things out of your life, but until you have a desire to worship him, that will not be enough. And this is also about what you're not worshiping. It's an act of resistance to our culture. We live in a culture that worships sex, that says you need sex to be a, a complete human being. And yet, if you're walking in sexual purity and celibacy, you're saying, I'm not going to bow down to that idol. I'm worshipping the living God. Your life is communicating to the world that I trust God and that he is enough. He's more satisfying than any illicit sexual relationship. In a a sex-obsessed world, this is such a powerful act of rebellion and a fantastic witness to God's goodness. One writer put it like this, nothing makes God look good as beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forego any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. As you make this statement with your life, as you worship him with your body, God is glorified. Of course, that doesn't mean it'll be easy. It doesn't mean that you won't have to say no to desires. Think of the Christian life as dying to self. Well, death is not a pleasant experience normally. It won't be easy. You'll have to say no to desires that feel uh, absolutely God-given and part of your design. But I'm convinced as we seek to subordinate our sexual desires, I'm talking as a single person here, to the desire to be faithful to Christ, to walk in holiness, and to worship him by walking in sexual purity, then we'll be able to overcome sexual temptation. And of course, every married person will at times have to subordinate that desire as well for various different reasons. So if we think about what are we pushing towards here, what does it mean for us to be a holy church? That's what we, that's what we when we started this series, we said we wanted to create a countercultural community of people walking in faithfulness to Christ. I think what it looks like is twofold. For those who are married, it means keeping the marriage bed holy, that they're not being drawn away in sexual temptation. They're seeking to live a faithful life in that context. And they're using this gift of sex uh, to, to really to point to God. To, to say, actually, that, that this is a picture of our married life, that we've given ourselves to each other, and that they're doing that in faithfulness and holiness. And it means for the single people that they are walking in faithfulness and sexual purity, and as they do that, they are showing the world that Jesus is worth more, more than anything else, and they're doing it as an act of worship. And when we as a community are doing that, that will be a wonderful sight to behold. So where does this leave us then? Where are the res- what's the response to this? I think there'll be two main responses in the room today. One of you, one set of you, some of you, will need to um, hear the, the message of God's grace again. You feel trapped in this. Maybe you recognize that your life looks very much like the world in this area. And Jesus would say to you, come to me again this morning. Come and exchange those filthy rags for the white uh, wedding garment that belongs that you that you uh, belongs to you as a child of God. Come and put on the white washed 
clean wedding garment that I've given you. Come and receive my forgiveness, receive my grace, and walk in purity. Like to the woman who committed adultery, you know, neither do I condemn you, but now his command is then to go and walk in, 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 um, in purity and holiness. But others of you will need to hear the call to um, expand your vision of celibacy. You've been obedient, but maybe you're begrudging, like a sense of almost like, I don't really want this, and this is not, a, this is not something that I receive from God. What I want to encourage you to do is, is ultimately to make the choice to trust him again this morning, that he is the one who can be trusted, that his word is good, and that actually when he calls you to single celibacy for as long as he's calling you there, actually you receive this as a gift, and you choose to use it as a gift to worship him, to express his holiness to the world, and to be fully satisfied in him. Why don't I pray and the band will come up. Lord Jesus, we just thank you again for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We come to you as a a people who know that our lives don't match up to your calling to holiness and faithfulness. We want to come to you in a in a posture of repentance this morning, a posture that, are, that we need your grace again. We need your forgiveness. Well, we're so grateful that that promise, as we come to you asking for your forgiveness, that you promise us as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed our transgressions from us. Lord, we want to enjoy that this morning. We want to enjoy your grace as we worship you and celebrate your grace to us. For those of us who are struggling with the calling that you've given us, struggling with desires that maybe we don't want or feel like they don't fit with the life, the calling that you've had for us at the moment, would you help us to see your goodness again? Would you help us to, to give our whole lives to you as an act of worship? We want to be a living sacrifice to you, Lord, and to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice because you're so worthy, Lord. You're so good. You're so worthy of praise. Amen.